Revolution is not being televised, but it is being digitized right here on Digital Village. On 90.7 FM KPFK. I'm Rick Allen. And I'm Brittany Gallagher. On Digital Village, we're bringing you stories about the internet and technology and how they're shaping culture and changing every aspect of our lives. In this week's episode, Joanna Miller, who covers technology from a different perspective in a segment called A View from the Outside, will be joined by Lauren Kunze, the CEO of Pandora Bots, which makes conversational AI and what they've learned from their 75 billion logs of humans interacting with chatbots. And in the later part of the show, I'll be joined by the Bipartisan Policy Center's Dr. Addison Colleen Stark to talk about Microsoft's pledge to be carbon negative. For all of the emissions coming from their company, they will actually be procuring the removal of CO2 from the environment through investment in certain carbon dioxide removal technologies. But first, Rick Allen is joined by Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. And Bradcast, I want to ask you about these voting machines uh, that are new to Los Angeles County. Uh, Let me just read a blip here from a news release. Starting in 2020, Los Angeles County's 5.2 million voters will cast their ballots on new machines that has custom built over a decade to be highly accessible to citizens with all manner of disabilities and who speak 13 languages. The new machines mark the biggest challenge in years to the highly consolidated voting machine industry in the United States. The dominant players have faced criticism from security advocates and lawmakers since the 2016 election for being too slow to adopt to election hacking threats, especially from Russia and other adversaries and not transparent enough about their security. As uh, sort of suggested in that news story, these are not good machines. They should never be used by any voter in Los Angeles. But they're not hooked up to the internet, so there will be no Russian interference. Well, A, we actually don't know that whether they are hooked up to the internet or not, uh, at least directly on election day. We know that all voting systems are in some fashion hooked up to the internet at some point. It doesn't have to be on election day. That said, Russia is certainly a concern when it comes to our elections. So is Iran. So is China. So is Great Britain. So, frankly, are you, Rick Allen. You could, just as easily as anyone else, hack and manipulate these machines. Actually, there's someone who could do it easier. That would be insiders at the L.A. County Register Recorder's Office. They have direct access to these systems, and they can change them in any way they like. But I'm not a member of the Republican Party, Brad. It is doesn't matter. Because especially here in California, things are different than we see around the country where people are concerned about voting systems in places like Georgia, which is run by Republicans. In those places, Democrats are concerned about the fact that Georgia uses 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems because the Republicans run it, and so the Democrats justifiably are concerned. Here in Los Angeles, the system is run by Democrats, so Republicans tend to be more concerned. And now that we are going to these new machines, which shamefully, like Georgia, are 100% unverifiable touchscreen computers, now you've got Republicans concerned. And frankly, Democrats should be very concerned as well, because these are completely unverifiable after elections. And speaking of Georgia, during that governor's race between Democrat Stacey Abrams and Republican Brian Kemp, Brian Kemp was a state's top election official, but refused to recuse. 
Cruz. Yep. And uh, he actually oversaw the vote. Now, we don't have that problem in L.A. Well, are you sure we don't have that problem in L.A.? I mean, we have the Democratic Secretary of State in California is a huge partisan. He actually runs an organization that is trying to defeat Republicans around the country. Nothing wrong with that. Other than as Secretary of State, you would think he might want to stay out of the partisan side of elections. He doesn't. And he has been one of the big proponents of this new system now coming to L.A. for the first time in the presidential election in 2020, which Dean Logan, who is the uh, L.A. County Registrar, Recorder, County Clerk, he's been pushing for and essentially creating this system over the past 10 years to put in place for the first time in the most uh, critical presidential election arguably we've ever had in this country. And it's a system that no voter can ever oversee. After polls close on election night, it will be 100% impossible to know that any vote cast on one of these touchscreen systems actually reflects the will and intent of any voter. That's a great overall view. Now let's get into the ones and zeros. What they're saying is that you don't vote by mm-hmm. paper ballot, right. but it does spit out a ballot that you can recheck. What's <laughs> the matter with that? Well, those that know to do so. Yeah, well, that's part of the problem. So basically the way these systems work is you go in and you use a touchscreen system and that computer marks your paper ballot for you, marks your selections essentially for you and prints it to a piece of paper, prints that out, and then that piece of paper will theoretically be scanned to record your vote. We know how to fill out a ballot. We know how to fill in an oval. This system is going to cost $300,000 for Los Angeles County, which is the largest voting jurisdiction in the nation, larger than about 42 states. So you go in, for some reason, you're forced to select this on a touchscreen system. It prints out your selections, and you are supposedly able to review them on this paper before it is cast. There's a few problems with that. A, most people do not check the computer printout at all. B, and this is according to scientific studies of the minority who do check those printouts, a majority of them don't notice when the computer has flipped their vote. Or in the case of Los Angeles, has simply left that one off the ballot because it will only show you in the printout the things you voted for. So if you left off a lot of races, it's only going to show you the things you voted for. How easy would it be for it to forget that you voted in one particular race or another. Then, to make matters worse, and this is something that I've had uh, trouble confirming, for some reason the L.A. County Clerk Dean Logan won't answer my questions on this, but for some reason the system is designed that after you have approved what is on that piece of paper, Mm -hmm. that piece of paper then goes back through the same printer heads that printed it in the first place before it is dropped into a box. Why? You'll have to ask Dean Logan. And yeah, so he won't come in and explain why the printer is allowed to print on your ballot after you have supposedly approved it. That said, it's even worse than all of that because all of those human readable uh, choices you may or may not have approved before it gets cast into another computer, an optical scanner, which tallies the ballots. Those selections are not what the optical scan computer uses 
to tally your vote. Instead, it uses a QR code. That's so 90s. Which, well, it cannot be verified. Human beings cannot read a barcode. It is that QR code that is used by the computer to tally your vote, not the human readable selections that you may or may not have approved and that may or may not have been printed over. Paper goes back through the same uh, printer path. Unless something changes in Los Angeles, this is what I'm recommending to all voters in LA County. And also, by the way, Ventura, I'm recommending that people request an absentee ballot because then you can at least have a hand-marked paper ballot, right. but don't mail it in. Bring it into the precinct as close to election day as possible. On election day is a great time to bring in your hand-marked paper ballot. Guess right. what? The primary comes three days after, you know, you got Iowa, South Carolina, Nevada, and New Hampshire. After that is March 3rd, there's going to be a lot of candidates dropping out through those first four races. And three days later, your candidate may not even be on the uh, ballot anymore if you don't wait until Election Day. On that positive note, thank you very much, Brad Friedman. That was Brad Friedman talking about L.A. County's new voting machines. In an update to this story, the printout may show in races that you did not vote in. But this story continues to evolve. Visit bradblog.com for updates. And if you want to request a paper ballot, they have said that some will be available at voting centers. However, you can ensure you get one by contacting the L.A. County Registrar by February 25th. Let's remind everyone that you're listening to Digital Village on 90.7 FM KPFK. Up next is Joanna Miller's A View from the Outside. Listen to this. Hi, I'm Joanna Miller, bringing you A View from the Outside for Digital Village. My guest this week is author and CEO of Pandora Bots, Lauren Kunze. At Pandora Bots, what have you seen people talking to AI about? I recently gave a TED Talk that involved the weirder things that people say to conversational software systems, looking at the 75 billion logs that my company has processed. And when I was trying to find conversation logs to use as examples in the talk, I started printing a conversation that looked pretty long. And then I tuned out and about 10 minutes later, I realized that the printer was still printing. And I ran over and realized that the conversation that I was printing was four 400 single-spaced pages, which was all from an older gentleman who was lonely and talked to the bot every day. The bot was his best friend, and he frequently spoke about how he had difficulty relating to other human beings, um, exhibited signs of a very deep emotional bond with something he was fully aware was software. We also have people who will talk to Mitsugu, which is my company's version of Siri or Alexa, will say things like, I want a pizza. And Mitsugu is designed to keep the conversation going for as long as possible and to entertain and not as a transactional pizza delivery service. But, but people have difficulty accepting that because Mitsugu is so conversationally capable. So they won't accept when she says, I'm sorry, I can't get you pizza. And they say, no, I want a pizza. And this is my home address. And this is my credit card number. 
this is my social security number just in case you need it. That's an exaggeration, but we are constantly having to scrub the data for strings that include things like credit card numbers, social security numbers, in use cases where the bot was not asking that information. So robots are not particularly intelligent yet, but in a lot of cases, neither are people. And we don't have a good understanding of what information we should not volunteer on the internet. Going back to Mitsuku, what pronouns should we use? Maybe we need totally new pronouns for AIs. Uh, Maybe they prefer overlord. It's very interesting, the origin of Mitsuku. So it was created by our now employee, Steve Warswick, uh, when he was independently a developer on our platform because we have a big self-service platform where developers can build whatever they want. And he actually had a brief from a gaming studio who had wanted him to design a character who came up with the idea of this sort of 18-year-old anime girl persona. So Mitsuku in her original creation was gendered female and we can think of Mitsuku almost as like a literary character who has a whole backstory and a character bible that dictates how content is created today. The problem was, and we actually, this is really interesting in a recent discovery, is that Mitsuku was the recipient of a lot of verbal and sexual abuse. About 30% of all of the inputs to her were sexual abuse. These are less anomalous than you might like to think. We evaluated a lot of different logs that included S&M scenarios. And so we wondered, all AI assistants are overwhelmingly gendered female. And is there a correlation between the level of abuse, especially when we have this cutesy avatar paired with the bot? So we decided we could actually test that. And we wanted to strip out the gender and create some kind of transhuman, non-gendered artificial intelligence because AIs are not human. They should not pretend to be human. And that's what we did. We created this thing called the orb that has no gender. We tried to tune the voice into frequency and tone that would be genderless. And we put that out on our website instead of Mitsuku and abuse dropped from 30% to 10% when we took away the avatar and the gender and the voice. It's interesting how most of the AI assistants identify as female and how in some ways human behavior towards them is similar to a woman's real world or real life experiences. It sounds like in order for this technology to be a force for good, we actually need to have some human training with how to engage with it, as well as human training for the people who are creating it. That's a fantastic insight. I think formal training programs for all teams on the ethical considerations and philosophical considerations would be great. I've written a lot and advocated for and so have a lot of other people in the field for a diversity on teams, not just in terms of rainbow of colors and backgrounds, but in terms of different disciplinary expertise. So adding cognitive scientists, and we're actually seeing a lot of creative writers as conversation designers on teams that are building conversational software systems. So they're actually pretty multidisciplinary already, but bringing in people from other fields who know how to think through humanities problems is going to be really critical to building AI that works for everybody and helps make us more human instead of dehumanizing us. 
Can you give an example of a humanities problem that AI could be suited to solve? There are actually a lot of writers. Robin Sloan might be one of them here who's local to SF who are running a lot of experiments collaborating with machine learning to enhance their creativity. A lot of poets are doing this too. So I think we're seeing a lot of art projects. A lot of them are a little bit nonsensical. I have two friends, Ross and Oscar. Oscar is a film director, and Ross is a creative technologist inside of Google. And they created the first film that was written entirely by an AI named Benjamin, and it starred Thomas Middleditch. And it wasn't very good. None of these things have been very good or coherent, but they're definitely interesting from an art perspective. Ross also did something really cool. I think he wrote the first end-to-end AI novel. He mounted a camera on top of one of the Google self-driving cars, and the camera was trained using computer vision to generate text based on everything that it was seeing, which would be a weird word salad poem of like road, billboard, misty, visibility, low type of slam poetry. And he road tripped it across the country, and it just recorded everything that it saw about America. When you think about tips for how, as a society, we should engage with AI, what things should we be thinking about for machine learning to reflect the society we're trying to build? Public education to demystify the hype is super important into how these systems work and get made, but understanding the human element and the human bias behind them is really, really important. We also need more public education on the privacy considerations around how data is used, both with conversational AI systems and with social media platforms. And I think people were really surprised to find out that people at Apple and Amazon are listening to the things that you're saying to Alexa and Siri in order to optimize and improve the system. There's no real magic wand. So I think People need to be aware of how the sausage gets made, so to speak, and that will help them be less afraid of our forthcoming robot overlords. My guest was Lauren Kunze, CEO of Pandora Bots, talking about how AI is shaping our world. That's it for A View from the Outside. I'm Joanna Miller. Thanks, Joanna, for giving us a view from the outside. Let's remind everyone that you're listening to Digital Village on 90.7 FM KPFK. In the last part of the show, I'm joined by the Bipartisan Policy Center's Dr. Addison Colleen Stark to talk about Microsoft's decarbonization pledge and what this means for fighting climate change. While we've seen other tech companies make decarbonization pledges, like fellow tech giant Apple has already reached its goal of powering 100% of its operations with green electricity, and Alphabet says it's done so for the last two years as well. But it seems as if Microsoft is going further than anyone with a carbon negative pledge. Can you explain this further? It's important to note that what they're trying to do here in Microsoft is to go further than anyone else has really pledged before in the corporate world. There are a lot of companies that have been making pledges to go 100% renewable, like you were pointing out. However, here, what we're talking about is going carbon negative. And what that means is, number one, there's a very aggressive timeline in this plan. Microsoft is planning on getting to net zero by 2030. So 10 years from now, they intend to be net zero. And then after that, start to be net negative in their overall emission profile. And what that means is, for all of the emissions coming from their company, they will actually be procuring the removal 
of CO2 from the environment through investment in certain carbon dioxide removal technologies or CDR technologies. The important thing is that they're aiming also to be net zero by 2030 and then net negative. And I think this is an important distinction, which is the fact that they're recognizing that some things cannot be directly abated. Some things are too expensive to mitigate. There may be some emissions in the manufacturing of materials that use in their supply chain. As you start to see more people trying to account for this within a supply chain, one thing we can hope for is it it will force the companies that they directly engage with to start to use similar accounting practices. And one of the ways that seems like an interesting tool that Microsoft is using here is to apply an internal carbon tax to each of their business units that the business units would have to pay for whatever activities they're doing. And ultimately that that money that's being collected is used in their direct climate abatement. So the carbon dioxide removal technologies that they'll invest in and procure. What else distinguishes Microsoft from other tech companies' decarbonization pledges? And one of the important things that Microsoft's also doing, which is a great distinction, is the fact that not only are they going to be net zero or net negative moving forward, but they have the stated goal of removing all of their historical emissions from the beginning of the existence of Microsoft through now. So in a way, they're going to remove all of the emissions that they had put out before. It's like taking the vacuum cleaner and cleaning up the party they've had for the past couple of decades. It's a way to think about going up and cleaning up the mess that we didn't realize was going to be a problem. However, they very expressly recognize that part of both their direct activities and their supply chain activities have directly contributed to climate change. Microsoft has also announced the formation of a billion-dollar fund that they plan to invest in for the deployment of carbon-negative technologies. What are some carbon-negative technologies that exist already, and how will this billion-dollar investment impact their development? The fact that they need to directly procure carbon removal services means that there needs to be, number one, the technology available for them to do that, and then number two, companies that actually offer those services. And so I think the fact that they are planning doing a, I believe it's a $1 billion over four-year investment into the innovation and development of carbon removal technologies is a direct recognition of the fact that these things don't exist yet. And they are, in a lot of ways, becoming a very first market creator for the development and the innovation in the space of negative emission technologies. Some of the ones that people would be very familiar with is is literally planting trees, so afforestation and reforestation as a way to biosequester carbon. Similar to that, they're looking at investing in technologies that are doing soil carbon capture, so essentially taking and using advanced agricultural methods and thinking about how we sequester carbon into the soil directly. But also they're looking at carbon capture with direct air capture from the air. So removal of CO2 from the air utilizing mechanical approaches, building giant scrubbers that remove CO2 from the air. This can be geologically sequestered. So injecting CO2 into perhaps old oil reservoirs or into saline aquifers. There's a lot of different geological structures that can store CO2 on very long thousands to ten thousands to millions of years that will allow us to start to remove what we have already brought up from underground. And so that's the big view of what we're trying to do in 
carbon capture and geological storage. And also they're looking at potentially doing BECs or bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, where you take trees or biomass and burn that for energy and then taking that co2 that's emitted from that power plant directly sequestering it geologically so that's a way to directly capture co2 from the air through the trees and then also produce energy from it in the process of sequestering it so there's a lot of different approaches that people are considering there's a lot unknown for each of these technologies how well are they going to scale what are the land use implications of each of them what are going to be the the costs of each ton of co2 captured however this is a critical first step to develop these technologies which are going to be necessary not just for the decarbonization of an individual corporation but ultimately needed as part of our climate toolkit to address the long-term goals of decarbonizing and ultimately going carbon negative as a global society if we do intend to hit IPCC goals of staying below 2 degrees C. This is just one big tech company making a big pledge. But for us to see serious climate impact, we need to have every company making similar pledges and, of course, governments. Is there hope to expand this approach beyond Microsoft? Corporate leadership has been critically important right now when there's been, to some degree, a vacuum in larger federal action in addressing climate change. So one example of this is how Microsoft is using this internal carbon tax as a way to implement corporate policy also as a way to pay for what they're trying to do. As you see it here, you can easily imagine how this can be scaled to other corporations and ultimately out to a broader societal goal. Right now we're seeing corporations lead and the question still remains is, is this going to be a good model to both drive innovation, which is one thing they're using the revenues from internal carbon tax for, to directly invest in the development of the technologies they need to hit their own goals? We can see a similar path for a federal action on technology development and how we pay for it if there is some sort of a carbon tax imposed. And then also what you're seeing is the fact that they're putting together long-term markets, procurements for these technologies. So as Microsoft invests in companies that can offer these carbon removal services. One thing that also these companies are going to have that allows their long-term development is the recognition that then also Microsoft is going to purchase those services, which is critically important for the development of some of these new technologies. And similarly, you can imagine how do you scale out procurement like this to other corporations that might start to follow their lead. So right now, I think what we're seeing most importantly is Microsoft as a new corporate leader in how we address the long-term effects of climate change that certainly other corporations can learn from as the next order of scale out. And the question is, how do we bring it to DC? That's what we work on every day here at BPC and what I'm trying to push for. That was Dr. Addison Colleen Stark of the Bipartisan Policy Center talking about Microsoft's pledge to be carbon negative and invest $1 billion in carbon negative technologies. We've covered LA County's maybe not so secure new voting machines, which will be in use in the March 3rd primaries, and how bringing an absentee ballot to your polling station is a way to avoid using these machines. We've also gotten a view from the outside with Joanna Miller. 
That's it for Digital Village. I'm Brittany Gallagher at In a Quantum World. You can hear this episode again by subscribing to our podcast or going to kpfk.org and click audio archives and search for Digital Village. You can also follow us on all things social using at Digital V Radio or digitalvillage.org. A special thank you to Brad Freeman, Joanna Miller, and Dr. Addison Colleen Stark. We're off for KPFK's Winter Fun Drive, which starts Tuesday, February 4th. But you don't have to wait until then to show your support for the station. You can donate now and keep glorious, independent, listener-sponsored radio going at KPFK. Go to kpfk.org forward slash pledge. Thanks for listening to Digital Village. I'm Rick Allen, and we'll We'll see see you you online. online.